Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Every Square Inch, where we seek to explore every square inch of God's world through a Christian framework. My name is Robert Cunningham, and in this episode, I want to go deeper into something we discussed in the last podcast. If you recall, I spoke about the schemes of Satan and how they are manifesting in our culture, and I talked a lot about C.S. Lewis's prophetic warning that Satan seeks to devour us within polarized extremes. He doesn't care which extreme we find ourselves in, just so long as the extreme becomes our obsession. Well, this week I want to evaluate that fiercely entrenched divide a little more from a practical standpoint and hopefully offer a Christian perspective as a way forward. Not sure I can think of anything more relevant to this cultural moment than critically engaging this cultural divide. Now, in my estimation, there is uh, no greater voice out there than Jonathan Haidt, author of The Righteous Mind. You may uh, know him more from his more recent work, Coddling of the American Mind, but um, as far as popular level moral theory stuff, I think Haidt is indispensable for where we find ourselves. The reason why I like him so much is I think his understanding of our division fits with the Bible's prioritization of love within image bearers of God. As Augustine and more recently Jamie Smith at Calvin College have demonstrated, we are not the sum total of our ideas, as the Enlightenment would have us believe. Instead, we are quite literally, we are what we love. Does that distinction make sense? We tend to have this view of human personhood that is purely rationalistic, um, compelled by ideas. And in this way, we can be reasoned into different perspectives. That's not the case. This is why liberals and conservatives can argue all day with well-formed argumentation that they themselves view as obviously true, and yet we never get anywhere at all. That's because we filter information and ideas first and foremost through what we love. We are not detached, objective, neutral ground observers. We are lovers. Better word might be we are worshipers. Something has captured our love. Something owns our worship and consequently has formed an orthodoxy of belief surrounding our love, meaning deeply held convictions ordered around what we worship. And that love and its subsequent orthodoxy is nearly impervious to outside ideas and argumentations that do not share our same love. Now, Jonathan Haidt is not religious. I, th I think he's an atheist. But his research as a social psychologist confirms this biblical view that image bearers are primarily worshipers who desire and not thinkers who reason. Haidt invokes the Scottish philosopher David Hume, who argued that reason is a slave to the passions. Same idea. Hume calls it passions. Augustine calls it love. The Bible calls it worship. Um, Haidt calls it gut-level emotions and intuition. However you want to frame it, the idea is that our reasoning is a slave to our deepest desires. And this is why he calls it the righteous mind. Do you see that nuance? Our vision 
of what is righteous controls our mind. And so this is how it works according to Haidt. If you study any tribe, his research is focused on the conservative and liberal political tribes in American culture. That's kind of his research. The empirical evidence shows that we are committed first to our tribe, and then all reasoning that we do is filtered through that tribal commitment. Or, to state it differently, our reasoning, Height says, tends to be post hoc meaning we have a predetermined gut-level conviction and our reasoning always follows that predetermined commitment. Height says our reasoning tends to serve as a press secretary for our passions. So Jen Psaki, uh, President Biden's press secretary, is not a neutral party. (laughs) Every time she takes the podium, She does so with a predetermined narrative, President Biden is right. That's her job. Her job is to take all the evidence, ideas, questions, all of that, and spin them to reinforce the predetermined narrative that President Biden is right. Well, your mind serves as a press secretary for your heart, constantly filtering and spinning everything to support your predetermined love. And this is what we see playing out in our cultural divide. Consider, for example, what we do with science. And I literally mean what we do with science. Contrary to the Enlightenment, science does not determine us. We determine the science. We filter scientific evidence through the lens of our tribal commitments. So liberals look at conservatives and say, you are denying science when it comes to global warming. Conservatives look at liberals and say, you are denying science when it comes to gender. And the truth of the matter is both sides filter and spin science to fit predetermined agendas that fit our tribe. So that's Jonathan Haidt's theory of the righteous mind, a theory I think is confirmed by Scripture, which I will freely admit is my convictional filter. More on that in a second. But there's one more thing at play here that explains not just why we are divided, but why we are so fiercely divided. What is unique about our age is that we have constructed a culture that caters to the righteous mind phenomenon. The information that we now consume is almost exclusively digital and shaped by algorithms. These algorithms are a precise artificial intelligence able to deliver content, both real and fake content, based solely upon these gut-level tribal instincts that control us. So what is fed to you loves what you love, hates what you hate, celebrates what you celebrate, fears what you fear, and so forth. And rarely ever does it contradict your tribal commitments. Meaning this, we don't need our reason to be a press secretary filtering through ideas to make them fit our tribe. The echo chamber information loop serves as a press secretary constantly reinforcing the shared loves of our tribe. So what's happened since The Righteous Mind was published in 2012 is The Righteous Mind has been given steroids, and therefore so has The Divide. That's where we find ourselves. Now, what can we do? It would seem the solution is to step outside our echo chamber humbly listen and learn from other perspectives. 
The problem, however, is that if the righteous mind hypothesis is correct, this is not enough to heal our divide. Try as we may, we will filter those outside encounters and ideas through our gut-level commitments. I'm not saying it's a bad idea to dialogue with those who see things differently. It's actually a great idea, and you should do it. And I'm not saying that that won't change you. It will. It absolutely will. But again, the key is that you will be changed not necessarily because of their arguments, but because of the inevitable humanizing effect that will take place. Meaning, you, you will like them. You, you saw them as enemies, you get to know them, and you say, I like this person. And so empathy and compassion and these deeper desires will arise, and that's what will bring you together, not necessarily reason and argumentation. So that's definitely a worthy exercise that you should do. But my point is at the end of the day, the arena of competing arguments will not heal our land. My contention is that if we are driven by our worship, our love, our uh, desires, our tribal impulses, then that is what needs to be evaluated more so than ideas. Examine what you love more than what you believe. Now, it's an unsettling experience to place your tribal commitments under the microscope for evaluation. I've been through it personally. It's scary. I've done the crisis of faith, dark night of the soul. I'm basing my life on a first century guy I believe died and came back to life. Am I freaking crazy? (laughs) I've been down that path. Well, my love for that man survived that examination was even refined and strengthened by it. And I would like a brief opportunity to tell you why. Again, I'm putting my cards on the table and being honest that mine is a deep-seated Christian commitment. I'm not hiding that from anybody. That's my filter. I'm not denying it. But let me share with you why I think this commitment has the resources to heal the great chasm of our cultural divide. Now, first, it must be said that Scripture renounces the simplistic reductionism that thrives in our polarization. The righteous mind fuels reductionist reasoning. It has to. What we are forced to do to defend our tribe is reduce things to fit our commitments. So take the racial issue in our country, for example. Conservatives look at disproportionate poverty within the black community and reduce the solution down to individual responsibility and choice-making. And there is data to back that up. Progressives look at the same situation and reduce things down to systemic problems and therefore systemic solutions. And there is data to back that up. And this reductionism allows them to make compelling arguments for their tribe, but arguments that the other side is not willing to entertain because it doesn't fit their tribal narrative. Okay, now let me turn to the wisdom literature of Scripture and show you how it won't allow for this reductionistic game we play. Let me quote two verses from the same chapter of Proverbs, Proverbs 13. Two verses, okay? The first one is this. Dishonest money dwindles away, but whoever gathers money little by little makes it grow. Okay, the conservative loves that verse. See, make good choices. Dishonest money dwindles away, meaning crime doesn't pay. But whoever gathers money little by little makes it grow. Get a job, 
save your money, little by little you will lift yourself out of the cycle of poverty. Good choices, individual responsibility, there you go. Okay? But literally the same chapter in Proverbs says this. The unplowed ground of the poor would yield much food, but injustice sweeps it away. Now, progressives love that verse. The poor can't get ahead with good choice making when there is no opportunity for them to do so. Sure, the ground of the poor could yield much fruit, but exploitive injustice sweeps that potential away. They are not people who just make bad choices. They are a hopelessly oppressed people who have had their choices taken from them by injustice. So in just one chapter of the Proverbs, the conservative liberal tribalism is dismantled. And this is consistent throughout Scripture. You're just not going to find simple reductionist thinking, but instead an incredibly complex diagnosis and complex cure to the world's ills. But beyond dismantling our reductionism, there is actually a way forward that I think is uniquely compelling. And no surprise, it's found in Jesus, who is the embodiment of my deeply held commitments. Jesus does two things that are unique, and I think the way to heal what has become of us. What he does in these two things is flip the righteous mind paradigm on its head. The righteous mind always seeks to justify my tribe and demonize the other tribe. Jesus calls his followers to do the opposite. In his Sermon on the Mount, which is his discourse toward his tribe, we find a radical critique of self and love of enemies. So toward me, his committed follower, he says this, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. Do you see what he's done? As his follower, my primary critique is reserved for me, not them. Then, toward those on the other side of the divide, he demands this of me. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what, what everyone in America is doing right now. Love your neighbor in your own tribe and hate your enemy in the other tribe. But Jesus says this, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So this is what Jesus has done. The righteous mind hypothesis is correct. We are slaves to what we worship, what we love, and then our reasoning is filtered through that commitment. But what if at the heart of your love commitment is a critique of self and love for enemies? What if the central commitment of a tribe was humble repentance within our tribe and humble forbearance toward the other tribe? What if central to your worldview is love for those who don't share your worldview? That's the tribe Jesus seeks to form. And that's the tribe I want to be a part of. I don't do it perfectly, but it is my gut level, deepest commitment nonetheless. Now, those who are not followers of Jesus, 
our right to say, well, that sounds lovely. And if Christians would practice that, I might find it compelling. But I don't see any difference between Christians and the rest of our divided culture. And I would say, you have a really good point. I think a lot of Christians need to do what Jesus demands that we do and look first at the log in our own eye and seriously evaluate whether Jesus is truly our tribe or one side of our worldly dichotomy is our tribe and we're just using Jesus to support that. It's very serious, a serious issue for American Christians right now. And I would just say the greatest test of whether you are following Jesus or the ways of our culture is your disposition towards those who don't see things your way. Jesus could not be clearer. Love your enemies. He said it, and then he himself did it by dying for you when you were at enmity with him. If your tribal commitment does not produce love for those who disagree with you, and even hate you, then I don't know what tribe it is, but it is not the tribe of Jesus. The filter our reasoning implores, the the press secretary that we send out, is always in defense of love, not just of our own tribe, but even of our enemies. Thanks so much for listening. It's a lot for today. If it's been helpful consider sharing it with others rate review all that good stuff and we will be back soon with another episode of every square inch